This evening we are recording a study in Ephesians 1 from 7 down to verse 13, particularly dealing with the witness of the Spirit. Now it is our custom to read a portion of scripture together at this meeting, and those of you who are listening to this recording may, if you wish, share it with, it, with us. If so, would you switch off for a while and read together with us 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Just a word with regard to the closing part of this first chapter of 2 Corinthians. You might wonder why it was that the Apostle said that with him there should be yay, yay, and nay, nay. It seems strange that the man should say that at first. But you see, he's talking about his plans, his intention to visit Macedonia and pass through Judea. But he said, I haven't done it. And I may not do it. Now he said, I don't want you to think that when I said that I used likeness. But he said, I don't purpose according to the flesh. I make my plans but I have to lay them before the Lord, and if he says, you go somewhere else, I go somewhere else, he said. So, but I'm concerned, I'm not one of those persons who say, well, I said I'm going, and I'm going. With me, it's not yay, yay, and nay, nay. But he said, don't mistake me. That's not the character of my message. Oh, no, he said. Howsoever many be the promises of God, in him is the yay, and in him the amen to the glory of God. So there's a little difference there. You see, we are not God. We can't say, I will. We might say, I wish. But the Lord's will may be otherwise. But he said, don't misconstrue, because I have to alter my plans, that I'm not sure of the teaching that's been entrusted to me. Well now, this leads on to the seal and the earnest. You remember, in this chapter, we're going to consider something about the seal and the earnest in Ephesians chapter 1. So shall we now turn to Ephesians chapter 1. May I remind you that this section which we are dealing this evening is the first of seven sections in the doctrinal part of Ephesians. The first of seven. And it extends from verse 3 to verse 14. And it is divided into three parts by the recurrence of what is almost like a refrain to the praise of the glory of his grace, verse 6, to the praise of his glory, verse 12, to the praise of his glory, verse 14. And that subdivision is useful because it's not invented by man, it's there in the passage. And the first section is all about the will of the Father before the foundation of the world. The second section is all about the redeeming work of the Son, now. And then, the third section, the subsequent work of the Spirit, until the yet future day of redemption. Well now, we're going to consider one portion, which belongs to the work of the Son, and overlap into the witness of the Spirit. That portion we were not able to get into our study last time, and it's too important to omit And that is the word that we get at the end of verse 12. 
that we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ. Will you first of all notice the parallelism between verses 5 and 6 and verses 11 and 12? There's no need for me to turn to the board and put it there. I think you will build it up in your own mind's eye. First of all, you notice that we have in verse 5 the word predestinated. Predestinated. Will you put that down, as it were, under the letter A? Predestinated. Now you look across to verse 11. And there again you have predestinated under verse 11. Now the predestination in verse 5 was unto the adoption. And when we considered adoption, we discovered it meant the appointing of a firstborn and an heir. And the predestination in verse 11 is unto an inheritance. Well, that's worth walking on all fours, isn't it? Predestinated to be the heir, predestinated to have an inheritance. You say, what's the difference? Well, I was the heir to all my father's property, but he hadn't got any. But in this, in this case, if I'm appointed the heir, my there's glory beyond dreams. Yes. Well, if you see, in verse 5 and 6, this is according to the good pleasure of his will. And in verse 12, uh, verse 11, it says it's according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. So those three members walk together, don't they? <laughs> Predestinated to adoption or inheritance, uh, the um, according to his will, and then it ends in verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace, and it ends in verse 12, that we should be to the praise of his glory. So there's only one member left. <coughs> At the end of the first little section, it is, we are accepted in the beloved. At the end of the other section, we first trust in Christ. He said, well, I don't see very much connection there. No, well, that's a part of our duty this evening to try to make that speak. So keep that in mind, that there is something in the words accepted in the Beloved, which apparently are echoed by the words, first trusted in Christ. But we've got to examine the words first, before we can make any doctrine or build any teaching upon them. <laughs> now on the board, I have written, just on this side, two Greek words. Whether you understand Greek or not, it doesn't matter. You can see that the first one is Elpizo, E-L-P-I-Z-O. And the second one is Elpis. So if you don't know A from B, you can say, well, they look as though they belong to the same family. They are. One is a verb, and the other is a noun. But unfortunately, in our Bible, it says, we first trusted in Christ. And when we get the next occurrence of the word in verse 18 is called hope. Hope. Now, which is it? You don't, you don't say, I'm looking forward to that blessed trust. You say, blessed hope. Or again, would you turn to Romans 15, where we've got the two words right together. Romans 15. The same two words. Elpizo and Elpis. 15.12, and again, Isaiah says, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he that shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles trust. Now the God of hope. Don't you see, it's a pity, 
If you've got exactly the same word except from the grammatical point of view, one's a verb and one's a noun, isn't it a pity not to put hope? So shall we do it. In him shall the Gentiles hope, now the God of that hope feed you with all joy and peace in believing. Incidentally, this is nothing to do with our subject at the moment, but this was the hope before the church during the Acts of the Apostles. A root of Jesse to reign over the Gentiles. That's something a little different from the blessed hope of the church, isn't it? We've got nothing to do with the root of Jesse and certainly nothing to do with reigning over the Gentiles, but they can. So now we, we, we realise that we better be watchful about this word El Paiso, lest we are led astray. Strictly speaking, we ought to use the word trust as one of the translations for the word which is often translated believe. Because, you see, we can believe a thing, but not trust it. I said to a lady today, I said, I believe this letter was promised. It's come this morning, and I handed it to her. But I didn't trust it, I didn't know what was in it. I simply believed it. But if it had been addressed to me and I've been anxiously waiting for it and I opened it, oh, this is it. That's more than belief, that's trust. So, we need trust to be the final expression of the word faith. And that is incipient in the Hebrew word, for the Hebrew word for believe all the way through the Old Testament is our English word, Amen. Perhaps you didn't know that. The simplest definition of faith, you need not be a philosopher or a theologian, is to say faith says amen to anything God has recorded. And you won't get far wrong if that's your position. Well now, we're trying to lift this out then. So we come to Ephesians 1, verse 12, again. And instead of saying, who first trusted in Christ, the margin has already reminded you that it might be hoped. Now, what does he mean by first hoped in Christ? <coughs> well, that may have more than one meaning. It may mean that these believers hoped before some other believers did. Now, is he referring to the hope that was running through the Acts of the Apostles and now he says you're sharing it? That's what some think. But you know that in the New Testament, hope is never used in a slipshod manner. It always refers either to the realisation of the according, the hope of the according, or to the fulfilment of a promise, the promise that God made unto our fathers. It's always a calling or a promise that's in view. You can't just merely hope any more than you can just merely believe. That's only turning it into a lucky charm. You must believe somebody or something, and you must be hoping for something or somebody. And having got so far with regard to the way in which words are used, one of the testimonies to the fact that we have degenerated is the way in which language changes. Very, very seldom, if ever, does a word improve in its meaning. It nearly always goes down in the scale. Take, for instance, that little group. Art. Craft. Cunning. All good words, all bad words today. Artful, crafty, cunning person. You wouldn't say, what a splendid title to give to that painter of pictures. You see, it's degenerated. A man wouldn't get thank you to, to call him a villain because he lives in a villa today, but true, should be. It's gone 
la oigas. So today, when a person doesn't really, is not really sure of himself, he says, oh, I hope so. Fancy degenerating a word like that. If you go up to an unsaved person, and you ask them if they're saved, and they're not, they say, oh, I hope so. So hope's gone, you see. So we better suggest another word. Expectation is the word. Because you get expecting something, but it looks as though you have a ground for it, whether you're right or wrong. So here we have something that you're expecting. And if God's the one that's promised it, you can be sure about it. Now what does this mean then? Well, we must examine the stage further. This word first is the little word pro, P-R-O. Now you know that's coming to our own language, so there's no need to give chapter and verse for that. But it has three different applications in its usage in the New Testament. It could be just the word before. Something before your faith. It can be in time. Beforehand. Or it can be in superiority. Before somebody else. Now which is this? It can be before your faith. Well that doesn't uh, seem to have much sense. It can be before in time, that could be the meaning, but we come back to our structure now. Look, we are predestinated to the most exalted position in the family, the adoption. And we are highly favoured, not merely accepted, we are highly favoured in the beloved. This is something which is supreme, isn't it? Well, he says, that's what I'm telling you. You're in a state of prior expectation. Not so much dealing with time, but with dignity. So, I'll give you a chapter and verse for that. Romans 3, verse 9. Romans 3, verse 9. In the earlier verse, the question was asked, what advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? He says, you seem to have wiped out all the distinction for by the time you put the Gentile as you've done in chapter 2. Doesn't seem to be worthwhile being a Jew. Oh, he says, yes, yes, yes. Much everywhere. Because to you were committed the oracles of God and so on. But he said, don't you go to the wrong conclusion and because you have an advantage in being a Jew that you're better than somebody else? Oh, no. Verse 9, what then? Are we better than they? No, we not. No one. For we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. So you see, here's a good illustration of the difference between a dispensational position and a doctrinal one. Dispensationally, the Jew was first. Doctrinally, he was no more first than anybody else. He was a sinner like the rest of us. And that is often misunderstood, and a person levels it at you and says, Isn't Christ the Saviour of all men, whether it's before Acts 28 or not? You say, Yes, well, then there's no distinction. Don't you see? It's not, doesn't follow at all. We're not dealing with your need of a Saviour, we're dealing with your calling or where God intends to place you. But that's not quite our point. Are we better than they? Is this word proud? Not are we in front of them merely in position or in time, 
but in dignity. So we have even the words of John the Baptist can certainly mean a good deal more than he was nine months uh, older than our Saviour. He was born about nine months before Christ, you know. He said, he that cometh after me is before me. Does he mean to say, I'm nine months older than he? Oh, well, that's silly, isn't it? No. He must increase. I must decrease. He is from above. I am from beneath. Oh, yes, it means before in dignity. And again, we have in Colossians, just turn the page and see in Colossians 1, this is emphasized, the the idea of dignity. Colossians 1.16, Christ is being spoken of here. (coughs) For by him were all things created. And by all things it is vast, if you get the enumeration of it here, that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things. Now surely that doesn't mean many in time. We know that without being told. If he's the creator of everything in heaven and earth, he must be before all things in time. But he's before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, not merely in time, but origin, the first born from the dead, that in all things he might have the pre-eminence. And by the way, the creed says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. My Bible says, the one who is my redeemer is the creator of heaven and earth. And nowhere in the New Testament does it attribute creation of heaven and earth to the Father. It's always attributed to the Son. John, the first chapter. In the beginning was the Word. All things were made by him. Hebrews, the first chapter. Unto the Son, he said, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The heavens are the work of thy hands. They shall perish, thou remainest. So my Creator marvellous to say, is my Redeemer. And that's the testimony of the Word of God. It's a revelation beyond your dreams that it's there. But that's just one of those things that come out. Now, we're emphasising dignity, not merely time. So we now come back to Ephesians 1. <clears throat> that we should be, to the praise of his glory, who were in a state of prior expectancy in Christ. That is to say, he says, you see, your hope is not merely going to put you into a millennial kingdom or into the paradise of God. Your hope is not merely going to open the doors and let you walk the streets of gold. Your hope has placed you far above principality and power and might and dominion where Christ sits at the right hand of God. You are in a state of prior expectancy. So I suggest to you, that we have here an indication that he's now giving a hint as to the character of that hope. And that forms a great portion of his prayer presently, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Well now we must come on a little bit. In verse um, 13, it says, in whom ye also trusted. Now that word trusted is in italics. And so it's not there. It's put in to make sense. 
or to make it read. But you see, you might put a word in the wrong place. And, strictly speaking, I think we should translate it like this. In whom ye also were sealed. And then in brackets, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom then he picks it up again, also ye were sealed. So you've not only got a prior hope, but you've got a guarantee for it. You're not merely living in a fool's paradise and coming down with an awful bump one day. If you are going to be in any measure surprised, you're not going to be surprised because you've been expecting too much. You'll be surprised that you expected too little. And you now have your attention turned to this guarantee which comes to us under the word seal and earnest. This word also uh, has been slipped about in these scriptures and sometimes it deflects the meaning a little seriously. There's one example, just in order to help you to see it's worth bothering, right back in the book of Genesis, chapter 4. Nothing to do with our subject except the use of the word also. Chapter 4, verse 4, it's speaking about the offering of Cain and Abel. Verse 3, in process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he also. Now, if that's the way it puts it there, is that Cain did it, and Abel did it. But the also's in the wrong place. And Abel brought also. Not only did he bring the same sort of offering that Cain brought, but he brought something else that made all the difference. He brought the lamb as well. For these were worshippers. They were bringing their offerings. And God would have accepted Cain's offering had he had it covered by the blood of the sacrifice. But he was trusting in that. That was all he would do. But Abel said, oh no. Now in the New Testament, it comments on this in a very extraordinary way in Hebrews. For a literal rending in Hebrews 11 is that Abel brought more of an offering. More of an offering than Cain. He did something a bit more. And then extraordinarily still, in the Septuagint version, we get the word right division. Not exactly our word in the New Testament, almost. God spoke to Cain and said, um, when he spoke to to me about the offering, If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted. And the Septuagint reads, if thou hast brought rightly, but not rightly divided it, isn't that strange? Those translators seem to see something that Cain had slipped up by not rightly dividing between his own offering and the all-covering offering of the Lamb. And how many have slipped up since? Well, that's only just a little aside. You can forget it if you like. But this little word also is one of those words that must be kept in its right place like the rest of us. At least they used to tell me that years and years ago. Now we come back to verse 13. In whom ye also were sealed. Our version says, after 
that you believed. And that has been the origin, the jumping off ground, of a system of teaching which goes by the name of second blessing. Well, I've got no objection to a second blessing. I don't mind third, fourth, and fifth if there's any coming. But the teaching is this, that first of all you believe Christ. And then, after a period, either of waiting or praying or service or something, you get a little bit more sanctified and suddenly you're baptized by the Spirit of God and you get the second blessing. Well, so far as this passage is concerned, that isn't the truth. The word after doesn't mean that here. It could be rendered a bit more closely to the original in who? Upon believing. Upon believing. No interval. You didn't have to wait six months before you got the seal. The moment you believed is the teaching of this passage. The moment you believed, you were sealed. You remember in, our, in the hymn that we uh, sang, we sang number 10, and if you know the original of this, you know I've altered it. The original, I think, says, Prone to long, wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, O Lord, and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. I said, I can't see that. I know I'm prone to wander. But the Lord knew that when he saved me. So I altered these words. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. That remains true. Yet, I'll never fall away. By thy spirit thou didst see it. Seal my heart for that bright day. He sealed it. And so, whether I'm good or whether I'm bad, that's never going to be broken. Oh yes, it doesn't give me license. It doesn't give me to be slack. But all the effort in the world will never alter this position. I'm his. If anyone in the New Testament, New Testament can pick out the words of the Song of Solomon and take them to themselves, it's this people. My beloved is mine. And I am his. And that's by redeeming love. Not by effort. Not by study. Not by prayer. Not by anything I can do or hope to do. See. Well now, we're going to consider a little difference. Because in this 2 Corinthians chapter 1 that we were looking at just now, we have seal and earnest. So you may say to me, oh well, they're all much of the same then, as we are. 2 Corinthians was written long before the mystery was made known, yet they have the seal and the earnest. Ephesians is written after the mystery is made known, we have the seal and the earnest. So what's the difference? But there is a difference, friends, perhaps you remember. So shall we turn back again to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, just to see what he says? He's speaking about these promises of God. Verse 21. Now he which establishes us with you in Christ and hath anointed us is God, who hath also, here's our little word also again, this is something extra. He's also sealed us and given us the earnest. But before the seal and the earnest there's something else. The word establishes one word to notice. 
and the word anointed is another. Now, will you notice the word established in 1 Corinthians chapter 1? And you remember it's to the same church, Corinthians. So he's picked out in 2 Corinthians what he's already told them in 1 Corinthians. That's quite a principle you want to keep in mind in interpreting these passages. Over and over again you'll find a word in 2 Corinthians which is only to be truly translated by knowing what was said in 1 Corinthians. It says, for instance, in 2 Corinthians uh, 5, that death might be swallowed up of life. 1 Corinthians says, swallowed up in, by immortality. So you know you're dealing with resurrection. Well, here's another one. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4. I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given to you by Jesus Christ, that in everything you are enriched by him, in all utterance and in all knowledge. Now, you see, this is something more than mere salvation or the forgiveness of sins. Utterance. Knowledge. Well, when we come further along in this epistle, we find that supernatural gifts were given to these believers and one of the supernatural gifts was knowledge. Another was wisdom. Another was prophecy. Another was speaking in unknown tongues. What well, he says, you've been enriched with utterance and in knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. That's the word established. These supernatural gifts were given to confirm or establish you in the faith. So that you come behind in no gift. There's the word. Gift. Waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you'll turn to one other passage to confirm this confirmation, Hebrews chapter 2. <coughs> one of the earliest experiences in my Christian work was when I had dumped upon me, I'd hardly been saved, oh, just a year or two, and was only just groping me way. I had to take the subject of confirmation. And the other speaker was the local vicar. He was taking confirmation from his point of view. Of course, he knew it from A to Z. And I had to stand up against him, and so I didn't believe it. The only confirmation I could see in the scripture was such as this. So we dealt with it here. Now he's speaking in Hebrews 2 about the same as in which he's introduced the Hebrews 1 that in olden days God spoke through prophets but now through his son. <coughs> Chapter 2 says in days past he spoke through angels but now spoken by the Lord. Verse 3 And was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. How was it confirmed? God also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. Well, there's another reference there. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 2 tells you one of the reasons why the early church had these gifts. It was confirmed to them the teaching that they received. Well, he said, you've got that. You've been established. Of course, the pity of it is we get the word translated established and we're not always sure that it 
means, but is the same expression. You're established or confirmed by this. Well, then the second thing is that they were anointed. Now, what does that mean? Well, I think we'll turn to a passage which speaks about it in the first epistle of John. First epistle of John, chapter 2. First epistle of John, chapter 2, verse 27. But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things and his truth, and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. Bit complicated, but this is an anointing that teaches. This isn't mere something that's happened to you, you don't quite know what. And it teaches you in such a way that you know all things. But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you. If there's anyone in this congregation who's received this anointing, you're wasting your time, for you need not anyone to teach you. It says that. Well, now you see, we're not in the same position as these Corinthians. They had a supernatural endowment which confirmed them and taught them in a way that we haven't. We walk by faith and not by sight. We believe we are sealed, but we haven't got anything to show. If you challenge one of these Corinthians and say, how do you know you're sealed? Well, it may strike you down by rattling off a prophecy or speaking in tongues or working a miracle. That'll confirm it and finish it. But if anyone challenged whether I was sealed or not, I said, well, I don't know, I've never seen it myself, so I can't show you. All I hope is that God's word is reliable and true and he said so. It doesn't belong to the realm of feeling or exhibition. It's something that he has done. Doesn't matter whether I can see it, friends. It matters a tremendous lot whether he can. He's the one who put the seal. So we're not looking for signs and wonders in our calling. They don't belong to it. But it doesn't mean to say it isn't real. So now you see, in the church, in the Acts of the Apostles, they had the confirmation and the anointing which constituted to a large extent the seal and the earnest of their calling. Well now when I come to my calling in Ephesians 1 I've got the seal and I've got the earnest. But there's no reference to gifts. No, no reference to supernatural gifts. Except that we read he was sealed with that holy spirit of promise. Now again, what does this mean? Well, strictly speaking, I think the words would be better put if we to express the meaning the holy promissory spirit. It's not the spirit that was promised to come on the day of Pentecost. It's the spirit itself which is a sort of a pledge and a oh yes, a first fruits. We've got it already for us in Romans the 8th chapter in another connection. So it's better to see that. First of all, Romans the 8th chapter. This is speaking about the adoption in the second degree. Uh, but it has the same element about it 
that you can have something now in spirit, which is a pleasure of something to come, which is going to be in reality. So we'll look at Romans the 8th chapter. Verse 15. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. But haven't we received the adoption yet? Paul? No, he said. Well, when shall we? Verse 23. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, what have we got? We've got the first fruits. But what's the first fruits mean? A pledge of the harvest. Oh, I see. We've got something now which is very small, perhaps, but a pledge of the great thing to come. Yes. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves. So you see, it's no argument that you're not sealed by the Spirit of God because all your aches and pains haven't gone. You still groan within yourself while you're here in this life, but it doesn't alter the seal. Waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope. A prior hope. Oh my, it's here, you see. If I've got the seal of the earnest, it may be very small and minute, but it's all sufficient. And when the day comes, that which is, this is the first fruits, will be like one grain of wheat or one ear of corn to the whole vast field. But it's a first fruits and a pledge. We'll come back now to Ephesians 1 once more. In whom also upon believing ye were sealed with that holy promissory spirit. This almost takes upon it the idea of a promissory note or a pledge that has been sealed. And you know, the law of the land is that it doesn't matter how small the deposit is, so long as it's done legally, it's binding. I think Blackwood, the authority on much of English law, has put it down that one penny deposited with the intention of being a pledge is sufficient for pounds worth, doesn't matter how much. The sheer fact that it's been accepted as a deposit is all that's necessary to make that yours or give you the option of it. So we may have a very, very small evidence just now that we are sealed for such a glorious calling, but it doesn't follow. It may be very small. It may be so small that sometimes we wonder whether we've got it at all. But that doesn't matter. No, the seal has been given. And it is called here an earnest. Now this word has come right through from the Old Testament. It's changed in its spelling, having come through from Hebrew to Greek, Greek to Latin, Latin to Saxon, Saxon to modern English, and it would lose bits and add bits. So you must take it from me, if you wish, for the time being, that this is the same word. If you want to look it up, well, you may start with Skeet's Etymological Dictionary and go wading away through all sorts of things, and you might get properly lost very often. Now, the word in the Old Testament is the word Arabon. A-R-R-H-A-B-O-N. And I'll give you a reference. Genesis 38, 17. Genesis 38, 17. 
This is a sad story in the life of Judah. It's a very extraordinary chapter we slipped in the record. You notice that the last verse of Genesis 37 says concerning Joseph that the Midianites sold him into Egypt unto Potiphar. And the first verse of Genesis 39 says it all over again. And Joseph was brought down to Egypt and Potiphar. Or, what's the idea of putting a whole chapter in between and having to start all over again? At first you may not notice that Judah is challenged by a woman and she says in verse 17 uh, this is what Judah had promised. I will send thee a kid from the flock and she said, wilt thou give me a pledge till thou send it? So he gave her his signet, his bracelets and his staff. And when then she was accused later on of being a harlot, she brought out the thing. She says, are they the man? And he was convinced. Don't you see the very next chapter, Joseph is condemned for the very self-same thing that he didn't do. And Potiphar's wife says, and he is the pledge. He left his garment behind him. Oh, that's the story. Christ suffered the accusation falsely for what I personally had done. Chapter 38 is man. Chapter 39 is Christ. Judah and Joseph. Both leaving a pledge behind them. And both apparently condemning them. One rightly, one falsely. But that's only by the way. This word pledge is this word Arabo, earnest. Of course it was his undoing to leave that behind. But there's the idea. This word earnest is a pledge. And will be recognised and accepted. Now this comes right through into uh, not so much modern English. Uh, but it's still used in the north, in Scotland, where they have what they call an earl's penny. E-A-R-L-E-S. There again is putting down the pledge. And there are still remnants of it in other parts. Now while we have Genesis, would you look at chapter 44? It's good to know that if an evil thing is written about Judah, there's a very good thing written about him. He's like most of us, isn't he? He's like the Puritan. He's good in parts. And here Judah stands out very prominently. Jacob is concerned. He says, Joseph's gone and now Benjamin's in, involved. And so Judah steps forward and he says, oh, we said, hear what I say. My father's an old man. And when it came that we had to come down to you, he said, oh, no. So it says, verse 31, just to pick up the story, it shall come to pass when he sees that the lad is not with us, that he will die. And thy servant shall bring down the grey hairs of thy servant, our father with sorrow, to the grave. For thy servant became surety for the lad. That's the word earnest. Surety. This word, in the original, the word means to mingle and mix. It's a word that provides us even with the word evening. Because in the conception of the Hebrew, it was the moment when light and darkness began to mingle. It's the word that we get in the book of Leviticus. The warp and the woof. The woof is the part that's woven right through from one end to the other. Mingling 
with the uh, knitting or the weaving. An integral part right the way through. So said Judah. I so mingled my affairs with his that you treat me as you would treat him. My, this is again Christ coming into the scene. He who knew no sin was made sin for us. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. There's your surety. For thy servant became surety for the lad unto my father, saying, If I bring him not unto thee, then I shall bear the blame to my father forever. And if you're thinking that this is a type of Christ, this word blame is the identical word translated over and over again, sin. So Christ could say, If I bring him not unto thee, then shall I be a sin bearer forever. If Christ doesn't present me before the Father, holy and acceptable, what's happened to that sin that he bore? It's either now put away and I'm accepted, or it wasn't done effectively and I'm without hope. All this suretyship of Christ, you see, is so vital. And what a picture we have here in Judah recognising it. Now therefore I pray thee, let thy servant abide instead of the lamb. Instead of the lamb. There are three places in the book of Genesis where the word instead comes that set the pace for the whole story right to the journey's end. Seth has been given to Eve instead of Abel, who came slowly. Isaac is spared on the mountain and the ram is offered instead of Isaac. I am the surety. I'll remain instead of Benjamin. And then you've got your start. That presently somebody else was going to step into the breach and say instead of. And he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes. We are here. Isn't it there? Now therefore I pray thee let my servant abide instead of the lad, a bond there to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his father, brethren. Now listen again. Let's retranslate verse 34 into the language of Christ. For how shall I ascend to my father, and the lad be not with me? How shall Christ ascend and sit down at the right hand of the majesty on high, and one of those for whom he redeemed be lost. I think if ever a people can sing blessed assurance, it should be those of us who have endorsed and believed Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14. Here is the seal. Here is the earnest. So should we come back once more to conclude our survey this evening? Ephesians 1, verse 12 and 13. This earnest and seal is associated with the hope on the one side. We have this prior hope and we have this seal and earnest that it's true. Otherwise perhaps we should hardly believe it. Now it's connected on the other side with a yet future redemption. There is a redemption which is finished and past. There is a redemption which is yet to come. And that is the purchased possession. That is the inheritance forfeited but now restored. But that 
is such a wonderful story in itself and demands a, a fairly patient consideration of an Old Testament type that I think we shall have to say it would be far better not to spoil it by cramming it in the last few minutes. So here we have given again this evening a consideration of another faith of the truth which is written for us. We are being here spoken of as being blessed beyond anything that's ever been revealed before. And the marvel of it is that the scripture doesn't disguise the fact that we were without hope and without Christ and without God, that we were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and alienated from the life of God. We were in a desperate position. But of course that only emphasizes more than ever the grace that's manifested here. That he didn't choose some of the best or the elect or the chosen people to take this high place. He chose the outcasts. He chose those who apparently had no claim upon him. And he reserved it to the end. When the evil one had thrown a spanner in the works and brought Israel down in such unbelief that they could never be in that state a channel of blessing to the rest of the nations, that was their destiny. Well, he thought that he'd work the oracle, he'd stop God. But you see, God takes the wise in their, in their own craftiness. And one of the reasons that we've seen already for the presence of the word mystery in this calling, as in the other places, is an enemy at work. No mystery when there's no enemy. But while there's an enemy, God will have his own secrets and reveal them in his own time. So when the evil one brought a stop to the outworking of the purpose of God and turned Israel instead of being a chosen people and a blessing to the nations and a kingdom of priests. He turned them into a people that were blinded and hardened and scattered. Instead of stopping God, he only gave God the foreknown opportunity of making known that he had a purpose that was before the foundation of the world. And he had a purpose that was so far above that Jerusalem never entered into it, either on the earth or the heavenly. And he had a people that were no descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, and whose fathers were unknown, to whom no promises were made, outcasts indeed. And yet, they can see, as I trust you can see, so near, so very near to God, nearer I cannot be, for in the person of his Son, I am as near as he. So we leave our studies there and hope to pick up the closing section of Ephesians 1, 3 to 14 when we meet together next time.